there was one time when we really felt that we may lose family daycare from the early childhood education care sector, um, and that was quite frightening because we're such a small percentage, um, and we had to go back to government and really um, and new ministers and, again, put our case forward of what value we offer to the community, how we're so unique, how, you know, it is the only form in some rural and remote communities and mining communities of education and care. Over the last few years, family daycare has been in the news for all the wrong reasons. Multi-million dollar frauds of the subsidy systems have made headlines and have seen the government focus on cracking down on those rorting the system. But while it's a small part of the education and care sector, Family Daycare has been working to move beyond these negative stories. I'm Lisa Bryant. I'm Leanne Gibbs. And I'm Liam McNicholas. And this is The Early Education Show, a fortnightly look at the policy, politics and practice of Australia's early education sector. This episode, we're joined by Anita Jovanovsky. Since 2008, Anita has been CEO of New South Wales Family Daycare Association, which has the central aim of promoting and supporting all aspects of family daycare in the community. Anita joins Lisa and myself to talk about family daycare and how it fits with the modern early education sector. So thank you for joining us, Anita. Um, talk to us about family daycare. If you yeah, could look- tell tell Australia three things about family daycare right now this year, what would they be? Yeah, look, firstly, thank you also for asking me to join you. Um, it's a great opportunity to talk about family daycare and let the broader sector hear about us and where we're at and some of our challenges. But I guess to answer your first question, three things about family daycare in 2019, I guess firstly to say is that we are still very highly recognised as a quality um, education and care program within the early childhood sector and that um, we feel that we're a very unique part of the sector because we provide education and care within our home environment. So family daycare very much still stands for what it has for over 45 years approximately. And um, we have up to four children under the age of school, cared by an educator in their own home. And that can be extended to seven children with vacation care and before and after school care that an educator is able to look after in their own home. So we feel that we're very um, privileged to be part of the broader sector and we're very happy that we are very much in scope and part of the National Quality Framework, which is something that we've advocated for from very, very early days, always to be there, have the same standards, quality, and be part of the sector as we've developed and grown over many, many years. I think, you know, we're fortunate that family daycare is still a thriving sector today, because I know and have no doubt we're going to talk about the challenges that we've faced over the last few years. (laughs) Unfortunately, yes. We will have to talk about that. but, But I am happy to say right here in 2019, we still are very much thriving. And I see that we do have a very long future as part of the early childhood education and care sector. So I'm really grateful for that. And I think it's um, partly due because of our long history, like, you know, 
We have been going, as I said, approximately nearly 45 years within the sector. And during that time, we worked very hard with both state and Commonwealth governments. We've always advocated on the rights of children and families, as rightly so as the broader part of early childhood education and care. And we unite frequently because even though family daycare is a very small part of our sector, and I think we're 3% or less, and, you know, there's a real place for family daycare within that sector and particularly for some families and for some children. So we obviously advocate on behalf of um, family daycare, but we also unite with other large peaks and large service providers in advocating on the rights of all children, all families. So I think that advocacy work um, shows our long history from when we initially started to where we so are Nita, today. If I'm doing that maths right, you're actually saying that the first family daycare service started in 1975. That's Have I correct, done that maths yeah. right? Right. Yeah, that's correct. You know. And, and was all... it was it regulated at that time? Like was it? Yeah. So that's pretty much just. Um, it was only a couple of years after then. That's when the Commonwealth government was actually starting at bringing. In, I think back then it was called fee relief, and unfortunately that was before my time. But I think it's when they initially started looking at bringing in fee relief for families and there was a real need to and support women going back to, how funny about this, women going back to the workforce and making it more affordable. Um, and so Family Daycare decided they were doing and um, looking after each other's children in, in their own homes to assist, um, you know, mothers to go back and, and, and to earn some income to support and work help their families. And that's when the government of the day decided that, they needed to extend that and family daycare decided to set up an association and so that they could have a voice and could have an ear with government as long as as well as um, long daycare did and many other parts of the sector so we have been right there from the very early days when the very first um fee relief came into play then the regulations then i think it was um quality assurance program and so we've been part of that all the way along the last 45 years journey. So how did we go from that place to the place that we are now where in some parts of Australia FDC is actually synonymous with rorting you know like how did we get to that place? Yeah I mean that's really quite unfortunate but and um, it did happen and it has happened and we're still partly there, but we're in a much better place. I would say approximately, Lisa, probably around about four and a half years, four and a half to five years ago, there was a massive influx into the family daycare um, sector. We're not really sure why that happened. We do think it may have had something to do with a few years before that boundaries being removed where family daycare services didn't have to work within their own council area or within a certain area. It could be much broader. We're not really so sure. So initially there was boundaries where you could operate, was there? That's right, yeah. So it was stated on our licence um, that we, you know, if you were, say, um, Coffs Harbour Family Daycare, that you would work within those council boundaries and they were removed, which made it much broader so people could go um, across many, many council areas or the whole of the state if they wanted to. So we do believe there was somehow an opening and a change and all of a sudden there was this massive influx and growth in family daycare, which we had not had for 10 years previous to that. And we couldn't understand why that growth happened. And then all of a sudden we could see that a lot of it was um, 
new, obviously new providers coming to the marketplace with a specific cultural group. So they were sort of and cultural communities that were opening up family daycare services and mainly with um, educators from that culture and meeting the needs of the families from those cultures. So there was massive influx of new providers coming in. We, um, we, soon, we soon identified that some of the practices and only some of the practices of some of the providers that were coming into the marketplace um, were not meeting the high quality standard that we had been used to. And we were hearing that because educators were moving from a community-based non-profit um, service provider to one of the new providers. And then they were seeing that things weren't quite right. They weren't getting the support. They weren't getting the training. They weren't getting updates of, of what was happening within the sector. And that some of the practices didn't really fit. So we were, we had um, alarm bells going off as, as you know, a, a peak association for family daycare but some things weren't quite right so we started to address it with government way back then and four minutes so what year was this i would say this started probably around about 2014 2015 right okay yeah yep approximately around that time and um, did government respond at that stage Look, as I said, we've always had a seat with government and they've always had an ear and listened to us. I think initially, you know, when I was asking them that we really, really needed to look at what this massive influx was and the impact of, on quality that it was having and the things that, you know, we were hearing were really concerning. Um, I think initially they said, look, you know, like, you know, it's, a, it's an open marketplace, you know, it is competitive, you are going to have to be competitive now. Um, it is about, you know, getting women back into the workforce. We, we know what the government's policy was of the day and it was all about workforce. When I, I kept flagging these issues, I think they started then to realise, um, and I think it was in Treasury at one point, and I think Susan Lee was the minister at the time, so I'm probably going back to about 2015 approximately, um, and she was at a Treasury meeting, and that's when they said that the community support funding for family daycare had blown out enormously because there had been such an influx of new providers that they would need to um, cease that and that um, we would have 12 months to actually work and um, with the sector to, to work with the loss of that. So, so I think that was a little loss of the community support funding. So I think that was the first time that Commonwealth started to go, wow, something's not right here. And then I think when they started to recognise that um, the amount of childcare benefit, and that's what it was called back then. I know we're now in childcare subsidy, but back then in that world, and the childcare benefit was going through the roof for family daycare, it started to set off some alarm bells. So as much as I was giving the Commonwealth um, strategies of how we could um, cap this and, and limit it, which is like, okay, we have to have it open to new providers, that's fine, but how about we cap the childcare benefit until we're able to get under control what is happening in the, in, in the sector of particularly family daycare. Um, but it did take quite a period of time and working with government over really the last four and a half to five years in getting change to legislation and policy and then really becoming aware of the impact that it had um, overall. So, and, Anita, my... Oh, sorry, Liam. <laughs> I thought I, I'd been quiet for a little while, but um, mm -hmm. one of the things that's interesting to me, Anita, and I'm someone who has 
very, very little knowledge of the family daycare sector. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to hear you talk about that, that part of the sector today. I imagine one of the things that I'm probably quite similar to maybe many members of the community, which is probably have only heard some of the negative stories over the last few years, so obviously around the, the rorting and, and, and that kind of stuff. But it, so what impact has that actually had on, you know, the family daycare community? So the people you represent, the people you work with, has that, has that sort of taken a toll over the last few, few years? Yeah, look, it has. It's been really difficult because I guess one of the um, most challenging things was um, really looking after our reputation and our name. Because we have been around for over 45 years and we do provide quality education and care within the home environment, um, we were really concerned about what was happening and um, the the massive impact that it was having. So firstly, um, we felt that it would have an impact on our our families and our children and our enrolments. But what we actually seen after a period of time, Liam, was that our families and our children that were, you know, enrolled and engaged with community-based non-for-profit and family daycare that had been set up in communities for, you know, 30, 35, 25, 40 years, um, they weren't experiencing the same things um, as what was happening in these new providers that had come into the marketplace. So... Our families, even though they were seeing it on, on, on the news and in current affairs and even newspapers, they actually weren't relating it to the care that they were getting because they were still getting quality education and care within their own home and really, you know, great relationships and, and things like that. So we were fortunate um, that it didn't have a massive impact. But we also had to work with both um, Commonwealth government and state government that when these media things went out that, they were very careful that they would also they would always state new players coming into the sector and new providers coming into the sector. Um, so the terminology that they were using was trying to somehow differentiate the community-based non-for-profit from the new players coming in. Um, I mean, that's a really hard balance act and that's only one of the mechanisms that we used, um, but it did have a, um, a massive impact Whenever I worked with the Commonwealth Government to make legislation changes and um, we had to really weigh up the risk that it would have on the long-term community-based and non-for-profit sector. So even though it would have um, quite a large impact on on a majority of the new players coming in, obviously not all, um, the risk generally was very, very minimal to to the community-based sector because they weren't our practices anyway. So we were still continuing around high quality and and working around the NQF and all of those things. And again, working within our communities and supporting our communities and working with other services within our sector. So we were able to sort of track, but it was was quite challenging at time that whenever changes to legislation and funding was cut, the impact that it actually would have on on the non-for-profit and obviously it did have some impacts and they were struggles and they are challenges um, at times today. But we did, um, compared to the risk and, and to where we were, you know, back then and I think, you know, somewhere around about 2016 there was 1,100 family daycare services nationally. I know today um, after the Commonwealth and states and territories and working with their regulatory bodies, we're down to about somewhere around about 580. Wow, that's a, a huge number closed. 
yeah, so I think, um, you know, I think alone, like even in New South Wales, you know, we've gone from somewhere um, approximately, approximately probably around 2016, 2017, you know, around about 385 services. And I would say approximately today, we're probably somewhere around about 165. So I think working with government and um, over five years, which let me tell you, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of advocacy. It was a lot of meetings. It was four ministers and, you know, continually being there. And um, the, the legislation changes. And also, I have to admit, our state regulatory body have been incredible in um, basically closing the doors to new family daycare providers coming in through changing their service approval and process and, um, you know, and by doing that, limiting the numbers coming in over the last 18 months, but that's allowed them 18 months to also um, weed out um, family daycare services that aren't providing quality or, you know, a sort of, yeah, not really well, legitimate sector. Anita, I always had this kind of um, vague memory that at one stage when there was lots of media around the lack of long daycare places, especially for under two-year-olds and long waiting lists, etc., that the federal government almost made a decision that it was easy to ramp up family daycare because it didn't involve a lot of infrastructure costs. And I seem to remember at the time they were advertising like $5,000 startup fees for new family daycare educators and something like a $10,000 fee for new family daycare services. Have I made all that up or did that actually happen? It absolutely, yeah, absolutely did happen, Lisa. And I'd say we're, you know, and I'm, I have to say approximately, um, but I would say that's probably going back about... Um, eight or ten years ago. So yeah. they definitely, and, and don't get me wrong, it started then, but it probably lasted probably for about three or four years, um, that there was some money absolutely put in for setup. So for family daycare educators, obviously they're a small business working from their own home. It gave them that amount of money to get their first aid certificates, to um, get their fire extinguishers, their fire blankets, any, um, you know, risk assessment within the home, like gates at the bottom of stairs and the tops of stairs, and um, all of those sort of things, it really helped them to um, equip themselves to be ready and to meet all of the quality standards and to manage all of the risks um, before um, children were placed in care. So that was really great. And service providers were um, offered up to $10,000 if there was a new service provider coming in. Um, unfortunately, we didn't... Um, have a lot of growth in the service provision because, as you would know, if you're providing really quality education and care, regardless of what service type it is, there's very minimal um, profit within it. And if there is surplus, it goes back into the service that you're providing. So, we've, as I said, we've not had a lot of growth at all um, from the community-based non-for-profit sector over approximately 15 years now. Um, so there wasn't a lot of take-up in that, but there was a lot of take-up from educators using that set-up grant to, um, you know, to offset those initial um, setting up their own small business insurance and things, as I said. So it's kind of like, in a sense, the government actually created the, the very circumstances that then led to um, some of the not you know, the, the not legitimate people coming into the sector. 
I mean, look, that could have that could have been one of the factors. It could have been one of the influences, but it would only have been one. And I think you know that was probably wiped out by the time and you know those those setup grants and that 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 service. Um, grant they were probably finished prior to the commencement of a lot of these new services coming into play right. um, but it could have been one of the influences it's really hard to say what the actual and we've tried to look we've all tried to look back in hindsight and we're not really sure I think that there was just someone saying that there was a little bit of a loophole or there was a little bit of an opportunity here and um, to you know to fraudulent behaviour and unfortunately I think it just grew rapidly and way out of control and it's unfortunately taken the last five years to try and start reining it back in heavily as we are now. Anita you mentioned a little while ago just about the community support program funding which um, I was interested to sort of learn a bit more about and then maybe if you could tell us about the impact of what the removal of that um, sort of meant for the sector. Yeah sure so family daycare like has long daycare did and many years ago we and were very fortunate to have community support funding particularly and within family daycare because the um the service provider or the coordination unit as it was called back then is a separate um building to the educators because they're all working from their own individual homes and part of them and it was only a small portion but the community um support program would, um, depending on the size of the service, would um, give a part payment to family daycare services to offset, offset and assist them with some of the administration costs of processing the timesheets. And back then, as I said, it was CCB um, and that sort of thing. It was just a part portion. We did have to make up other levies through educator levies and family levies and to offset those costs to be able to run a family daycare um, service but the, one of the main things that it really supported it as well was the cost of the quality so that we had enough family daycare um, coordinators to be able to go out and to support the educators in their home to support them with the, the program that they were doing with the children to see how they were going and um, you know with their um their risk assessments to see if they had any issues and with the children's development to really support and help them around all of those aspects and relationships with families, you know, fees, payments, all of those things. And um, so it, it did. Um, so the, the court, I'm just wanting to, you know, really step this out for those that don't understand that in each individual family daycare service, you have coordinators that go out and more or less do coaching of the actual educators as well as a like a monitoring process. Is that is that how you describe their role? Or? Yeah, that that's correct, Lisa. So each educator is connected and, and registered with a service provider. And the service provider would have a number of coordinators and they would be linked to, you know, 10 or 15 educators and they would go out and support those educators in their home. They would do role modelling, you know, they would assist them with their programming and they would look at, you know, if there was something that they felt was a risk or a minor risk, they'd work with the educator how, you know, we'd be able to um, eliminate that or, you know, um, prevent it. So it is it is a very um, dual role. It, it's a role of both supporting, mentoring and working with the educators and also the families. They get to know the families within that educator's home extremely well. 
and um, they can support and work with the families as well. We'll be right back. Are you listening to our Exploring the NQS series? If you're a supporter of the show on Patreon, you're not only helping to keep the show going, you'll also get access to an extra podcast where I explore every element of the national quality standard one at a time. It's a great way to get yourself up to speed with the NQS, uh, consider different perspectives and grow your own professional development. Each episode is only 15 minutes. Just head to earlyeducationshow.com and click support the show in the menu to sign up and start listening for as little as $1 a month. All right, back to the show. What happened when that money disappeared? Okay, so we lost that money, I think, June um, 2015. So that's probably approximately, um, you know, four years ago now. Um, And we were fortunate that the Commonwealth Government, I think it was, again, um, Minister Susan Lee at the time, um, when Treasury decided that there was a blowout of this, that advocated for family daycare to have funds for a 12-month period, so that would be going back to 2014, to assist this sector, and particularly at this time the community-based non-for-profit sector, in being viable at the loss of the community support funding. So... We were fortunate to um, win that tender and we, it was a national program and we worked with services nationally to help them um, look at how they could be financially viable at the loss of that. That was a, 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 a huge amount of work and um, obviously being a national program and to try and keep the sector afloat. Um, we did look at, at different ways. We worked with services individually like even today, the rest of our broader sector have to look at their budgets, they have to look at their business plans, they have to look at what is going to keep them afloat, the amount of money that they need to do that, and particularly to provide a quality service, because that's what we're really talking about here, you know, providing quality education and care to children. So it's not about just running, you know, a tiny sort of benchmark um, service, it's about running above that and providing all of those things. So We did work very strongly with the sector and we were very fortunate that um, the majority of the sector um, were able to transition across. But, you know, in saying that, there was really major impacts. We had quite a lot of um, council services that decided that, you know, because now it was no longer boundaries, it wasn't within their council areas, it was within small business educators' homes, that, you know, with the loss of this funding being another blow, that, you know, it probably was time for them to withdraw from family daycare. So we did lose um, some family daycare services, absolutely. We worked um, with quite a few other family daycare services to amalgamate together if they're in very close suburbs and very close communities and to maybe pool their their resources to be able to stay viable and, and still provide the care because we were always looking at keeping the care within the community-based non-for-profit sector. So... Um, the impact was um, quite quite challenging and astronomical and it was just another major blow at a time when we were dealing with so many other things. It was um, working very, very hard with the sponsors of these family daycare services um, and making them aware of how important it was for them to still keep family daycare within their other service types and the value that it offered to their communities. Um, so there was a lot of work done um, to try and keep our family daycare sector afloat. There was one time when we really felt that we may lose family daycare from the early childhood education and care sector. 
Um, and that was quite frightening because we're such a small percentage um, and we had to go back to government and really um, and new ministers and, again, put our case forward of what value we offer to the community, how we're so unique, how, you know, it is the only form in some rural and remote communities and mining communities of education and care, how it is the best form of care for certain children because it's a much smaller family grouping. So it was about going back and re-educating continually the importance of family daycare within the broader early childhood and education and care sector. We did get commitments from the government approximately probably three years ago um, that they were truly committed, even though all of this fraudulent behaviour was happening and all of the challenges, that they were really committed that there would be a family daycare sector. And, and sometimes it's hard to, to see that when... Often when, um, you know, you're reading the minister's press releases, it sounds like, you know, uh, like he's keen to point out what a, you know, how many rotors there are rather than, I don't think I've ever seen a press release come out from the minister, from the current minister saying anything positive about family daycare. And look, I'd have to agree. I mean, you know, reading between the lines, most certainly that's what it looks like, absolutely. And, you know, I would have to say, as we know, it has been millions and millions of fraudulent dollars. Um, and I think that, you know, the minister cannot, well, couldn't possibly deny it because we know that that is, is the case. So I think there's times when um, they're definitely called to answer and explain. And I think, um, you know, all of that publicity, as you said, whether it's a minister's release, whether it's a media release, again, it has some sort of impact. Um, but again, I think, you know, family daycare is extremely resilient and, you know, we will um, promote and work so closely with our long-term communities that we've had um, to, make, to stay really viable and really am strong within those communities. And there is a commitment from the Commonwealth that they will keep family daycare going, but there's also a commitment that, you know, we've come a long way from where we were with getting all of these fraudulent providers out and, and then being prosecuted and being charged, they've, you know, massive fees, they've, they've gone to prison, and rightly so. And there's not a place for them in family daycare. There's not a place for them in our sector, full stop. Um, and we have come a long way, but we're not quite finished there yet. We've still got a few more, I think, to um, to move on. So I think until we're at that point where, you know, we're feeling that the sector is still in a, a reasonably really good place, um, I think the community base, unfortunately, and the non-for-profit sector, we have to still keep quietly and loudly at, at the right tables having our fight about, you know, our right to be here and the value that we add. And do you think sometimes um, you've also got to have that fight within the sector? Like sometimes it, it seems to me as if some of the wider education and care sector is a bit uppity about family daycare as if, you know, they don't think that you're somehow quite as legitimate as other service types. Yeah, Lisa, absolutely. And look, you know, from from the outside looking in, 
I absolutely agree with them. I think, you know, all of that taxpayers' money and all of that, you know, CCS or CCB, partly of it was, and that wasn't just family daycare. That was for every family and for every child. So the impact of the fraudulent behaviour that was happening on family daycare actually even had a broader impact on our sector as well. And I think it wasn't until... Um, uh, and I, I, I agree, I think a lot of services still don't understand um, that it was out of our control and that this massive growth had just come in. And, you know, the, the, the state was allowing them to come in, the Commonwealth was funding them, as much as I was saying to the Commonwealth, yep, if you've got to allow competition, if you've got to allow, you know, um, providers coming in, that's fine, but let's just cap the CCB because we knew that's what they were coming in for. They were coming in for the money. Um so all of those decisions were happening and all of those debates were happening. And I guess from the outside looking in, they're going like, seriously? Um, but I think, you know, in New South Wales particularly, um, we had very good support from our other large peaks and our other large service providers. And, you know, I know many tables that I sat at, they would say, you know, but the community-based non-for-profit sector, they've been going for 40 years, you know, they provide quality education and care. I mean, we really have to look at you allowing these new providers into play. I mean, it wasn't us that let them into the market share. It really was our state and Commonwealth. And I think, you know, um, for all of our, our other service types out there, whether it be long daycare, whether it be preschool, whether it be before and after school care, all of our service types, I think, we have to really reflect back on, you know, the history of family daycare and, you know, the long-term um, commitment to community, children, to families, working in partnerships with those services within our own communities. Um, I mean, that's what we've done for many years. Often we're just a transition for children before they go into centre-based services. And we always Does that happen a lot, that... A, a child will go to family daycare when they're young and then go on to a centre-based service of some sort? Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely does. And it would also be something that we would be um, recommending and, and the educator and the service would also be recommending for, for a child if they felt that, you know, they were able to go into a larger setting, they were able to socialise in a larger group of their peers, they were able to um, work with more adults other than one, and um, to get them whole, the, the whole preparation for school. And um, we believe that that is absolutely a stepping um, stepping stone for children. Um, and, yeah, we don't want to see children go from a very tiny, small setting of, you know, three or four children to a large, you know, kindergarten class of, you know, maybe 20 or 30 children. So, you know, we're always looking at the best way to transition children. It would be, you know, those children that really are only going to work very, very well for, for their own needs um, within that small setting. But, you know, we would often be suggesting, and I know services today very much still suggest to, to parents if they don't want to put them into centre-based five days a week, you know, if they are a five-day child, maybe put them into centre base three days and keep them in family daycare too, but definitely to have some sort of transition. Yeah, because we're always looking at what's best for the child and the family. So I think, Fernita, one of the, as, as someone who works in, um, you know, the, the birth of five sector in, in, in centre-based early education, I think, as I sort of said before, it's just family daycare hasn't really been on my radar much. I think in the ACT we have a much lower 
um, sort of provision of that. Uh, full stop, we've had a number of schemes that have sort of drifted away over the last probably five or ten years. I was interested when you sort of mentioned um, the, the desire of the family daycare sector to be under the national quality framework because um I, I'm, I'm intrigued is that was that was that kind of always the case so when when the when the nqf was sort of being rolled out you know in those years prior to 2012 was that a sort of combined sector thing saying yes we want to be a part of this or were there differing views on whether the, i yeah. guess the the set the, the, the nqf was the right fit for family daycare yeah no no we've always been part of the quality assurance system from when it initially started and i don't know if that was Lisa, you might know. I don't know whether that was around 2009 or something when the initial one started. So we were also... It's even earlier than that. Yeah. Leanne's our quality assurance yeah. person. She'd know so, those dates. Yeah. So we were always part of that and we fought really, really hard that, you know, family daycare would be part of the, that quality assurance process back then. And particularly so because we've always been part of it, particularly as the NQF came in and we were always part um, and sat around those tables of, you know, what the changes to those standards would be, what they would look like, how family day could, daycare could implement that. And as you would see under the National Quality Framework, most of the things are, are exactly the same as centre-based services. There would only be a few that are different because obviously it's the physical environment of an educator's own home. So they're the things that would have to change. But if you look at programming and relationships and sustainability and all of those other things, um, family daycare has to tick the box on every single one of those things. So, and uh, we, we believe that we want to be part of that, absolutely, because, as I said, we want to be providing the best quality education and care for the children within our services. Are there, are there specific challenges, do you think, the NQF um, sort of... Uh, provides for family daycare because um and one of the things that's kind of obvious from the data is that there is um you know family daycare has a large number of services that are uh, working towards the national quality standard so um just over 50 percent which is uh significantly sort of more than um than other parts of the sector but are, are there significant chats so yeah could... and look yeah, absolutely, Liam, and I take that on board, but I'm also going to say something here, you know, um, is that we did some research on that recently and we did research on our own member services. So that's very much, you know, the community-based non-for-profit. We do have some associate members for profit, so we're not entirely, you know, exclusive, of course. We we want to be inclusive, but we have very few take-up. Um, but we really looked at um, our, our full members, which is the community-based non-for-profit sector, and we'd actually had an increase in the quality rating within our own membership. So they were actually rating higher than they had previously, you know, the last round or the right round before. So I am going to say fairly confidently that I think a lot of those working towards us are the new providers that have come into the sector. And I feel reasonably competent in saying that because we have done our own research just recently. Yeah, that's. I guess that's what I was trying to get at because we know even within uh, centre-based and school aids that there's a significant difference between, um, and the and and these distinctions don't are, are often a little unclear. But the difference between the not-for-profit community-based provision and the for-profit provision that we know that the community-based not-for-profit tend to do about twice as better. I think I'm right, Lisa, in in terms yeah. of meeting the NQS. So I think the data in family daycare doesn't seem to be as broken up by a CEQA. but um. 
is there do we do you get the sense of that so it's not necessarily the for-profit versus not-for-profit split but it is the potentially established community-based providers versus a whole range of new um in, entries. yeah at, yeah except that the established yeah. providers are not-for-profit the the older ones are all not-for-profit yeah. and much later than when for-profit um, providers came into the long daycare centre, did they enter into family daycare? So, you know, for decades and decades, it was all not for profit. Oh, absolutely. It's only been the last five years. It's only with these new providers that's the first time we've ever had for profit come in. It, the, prior to that, we're all community based, non for profit, you know, and it's pretty much a 50 50 breakup of being and um, the sponsor being a council or a, a community-based um, committee, you know, um, is management. So it's either council, 50%, or pretty much 50% community-based management. So it's only since um, we've had this massive growth, which, as we can see now, is declining rapidly, thank goodness. Um, but I agree, Liam, going back to your first point, I, I would have to say, I mean, don't get me wrong, some of our, uh, you know, there's a few of our members that are actually working towards, but the majority are, are really way um you know meeting but away above that i mean most certainly have services that are exceeding yeah and i guess that was my point was i guess was not to try and sort of uh, to, to wave the, the data around and obviously but my my question was more around are there um are there specific challenges and my bias would be having worked in centers is that i'm really comfortable and i think would struggle if i wasn't working in a big team so having uh, educators and and leaders and people of different um skills and experience around me i i, I imagine there would be some specific challenges working under a system that that has as many um you know regulatory uh, requirements and and requirements under the law as well as meeting the nqs when you're sort of um when you're kind of for, for the majority of the time on your own is that like i'm just from a just from an educator perspective who works in one sector how this is probably a big question to answer anita but how no, no. how does that like what are the approaches there or how does that sort of work yeah. for, for individual and- educators yeah, sure. And they are working alone and they are working in their own home. But I, I would have to say um, there's a lot of support around them. So there's a lot of networking. There's still a lot of play groups where we bring the educators together and the children together to play, you know, in a larger group setting. And, you know, they get support there. There's lots of educator meetings where educators come together and support each other. They'll work through things around the National Quality Framework. They'll work on different standards. And um, there's, there's educator leaders in each of the family daycare services. They will spend time and work with the educators as well. Then they also have their coordinator, as I said, who goes out and visits them, supports them, role models for them, you know, looks over their programming and that, you know, it is reflective and all of those things and, you know, will support them. And um, so even though they are a sole worker in their own home, they most certainly are linked to a much bigger network um, within their service provider. They'll hold training for them. They'll bring them on in on Saturdays or evenings. And, you know, they'll do training particularly around um, the, the QIP, the quality improvement plans. They'll do training around um, certain elements if the educators are finding challenging within the National Quality Framework. So there's a lot of support for them. So I know we talk about them as because they are sole workers in their home, but there is a much broader network that is provided for those educators that are linked to the community-based non-for-profit sector. We as a peak body, we oh, 
We develop many webinars for them. We develop many M training sessions for them. We develop training sessions for the M service provider to run with them. So there's a whole lot of resources, tools and support um, that go into work with, with our educators so they don't really feel like they are on their own and they don't feel like they're, they're struggling with it. Um, you know, particularly around um, assessment and rating, because you can imagine when you get assessed and rated in a centre-based service, the assessors come in and you're all there and you're all being assessed and rated at the same time. We know how difficult and how uncomfortable that can be. Even if you're one of the best services, we always are always feeling a little bit like, oh, yeah. Well, with a family daycare ed service, they, they will pick, depending on the size of the service, they will pick three educators, they will pick five educators, they will pick eight educators. They will go into that educator's home. And Do they pick them randomly? Yeah. Yeah. So they pick them randomly. And the educator may know a few days before or two weeks before. Um, and then they represent... They're one of those three, five or, or eight educators that represent the whole of their service. That must be nerve-wracking. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, I think that's challenging for educators and, you know, we're working with the regulatory body around that and particularly around the National Quality Review now. We've got quite a lot to say within that, like I'm sure we all have. And um, so we did have a lot of feedback into that. So, you know, I think, but there is so much support around the educators because we were understanding of how they could possibly feeling or they are feeling and to make sure that you know we've done as much work and support with them so they're feeling very comfortable and we do it with all of them because you know we want the whole service to be quality and you know we don't just want three educators to be doing it we want all of our educators in that service working at the same standard at any time so um just like a service but it does add, yeah, there is that distance to it, Liam. Sure. Thanks, Anita. Um, Anita, is it getting harder and harder for you to get educators? Um, I'd have to say it has been a little bit challenging, yeah. It has been a little bit difficult, um, Lisa, and I guess it's really hard to say exactly why. I think, you know, in different areas, there's different reasons, but I guess if we just look at Sydney Metro and um, at the moment, I mean, the cost of living alone. So someone to rent a premise or, you know, it's paying off a mortgage and, um, you know, the amount of money that they work being a family daycare provider um, may not cover their actual costs. So it really is, um, I, think it, I think it's a number of things. Again, they have to become a small business. Um, they are contractors, they've got to get their own ABN, they need to pay, you know, their own tax and their own super and as much as we help them with educating them around that and getting them ready and supporting to set all that up, they do have all of those um, initial on costs that we talked about very briefly before that used to be covered in a setup fee but now there is not a setup fee where, you know, of course they have to have their first aid and a flat sick, they have to have their fire equipments. They have to have um, all of their risk management things in place. They have to have their own insurance. So there's a whole list of costs um, related to that setup. So I think, you know, and maybe, maybe it's some of this publicity because I guess if you're new on the outside looking in, you'd be thinking, oh, I'm not so sure. 
I think, you know, if you were someone that had been part of a community and had a greater understanding where our community-based services are, you'd probably feel a lot more competent. And, you know, if it was word of mouth by another educator and things like that. But but it, it is quite challenging, Lisa. And as I said, I haven't yeah. quite got my finger on all of the reasons why. But, um, you know, we definitely are trying to unpack that and and to look at, you know, what the new educators for family daycare will look like in, in our near future. You know, and we're thinking we're getting a lot more professional people obviously coming in because of the qualifications. So we have a whole lot of diplomas. We have a whole lot of teachers. We have um, most certainly Certificate 3's benchmark. But we've got, you know, we've found over the last particularly three years since the qualifications have come in, we're getting a whole um, cohort of much, much more professional people coming through too. So I guess it's the cost, you know, and is it financially viable for them to do this um, within their own home? And so I think there's um, a number of things that we're looking at to see why um, we might be able to, you know, knock down some of those barriers and see what they are to work through. Well, it sounds like you, you know, like there's lots of positives there, but there's also a few negatives that you're still having to face to overcome, you know, and like certainly it would be horrible if the sector contracted because of, you know, not being able to find, um, uh, you know, enough educators. Just so we can finish on a high note, what's the best thing you've seen being done at a family daycare service this year? Oh, look, there's so many new initiatives. I mean, I think one of the most recent one was where one of our services, um, sort of rural but not really rural, they, they, they were able to um, access quite a, quite a pool of money from the Inclusion and Support Program, and I think it's under um, innovative um, programs, and they use that pool of money to develop their RAP um, and they use that pool of money not only to develop their RAP and engage an elder to assist them in doing that, but also to in, engage elders to have yarning circles with other educators and to talk to them, to engage Aboriginal artists to come into this service at Playgroup and at other venues where they were together to do Aboriginal art and talk about that with the children. And so they were able to do a really holistic um, amount of work um, while developing their RAP um, and, and using the whole of their community and other services within their community and um, elders within that community to really, um, you know, start their journey on a really positive, inclusive note of um, cultural awareness as they went through it. So oh, um, that's brilliant. That's just one thing. I mean, there's many I could tell you. I said, we're really resilient. We will keep fighting and we will keep trying to provide um, extremely quality education and care within family daycare. Yay. Thanks, Anita. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. You have been listening to The Early Education Show. Thanks to our guest for this episode, Anita Jovanovsky. You can find show notes and links for this episode and all our other episodes at earlyeducationshow.com. The show is hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Liam McNicholas and produced by Liam McNicholas. The music is by Jazar at betterwithmusic.com. 
Please subscribe, rate and review the show in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps others find the show. Get in touch with us at Early Edu Show on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email at earlyedushow at gmail.com. See you next time.